0: It's very clear in this passage that Judah acts sinfully, obviously. Um, let's begin at the beginning though. And just try to give a sense of the context or a sense of like what actually is happening in this story. Because it's culturally foreign to us. So, basically, this guy Judah has three sons. Ur, er, Onan and Shelah and Tamar becomes Ur's wife Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, verse 6 tells us and the Lord put him to death we don't know what was wicked about Ur but the Lord put him to death then Judah said to Onan in verse 8 go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. What does that mean? Later on, we read in Deuteronomy 25 that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, say, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal put off, pulled off. Okay, that doesn't help us get any closer culturally. To what's happening here. Because that's still pretty foreign. Deuteronomy 25 is still pretty foreign. But it does explain the paradigm within which Judah is operating. Within which his family is operating. Obviously that was a practice that was already in place. Here in Genesis 38. Even though the law is not formalized until much later. As one commentator points out. This passage actually isn't really a passage about leveret marriage. This passage is a passage about Judah's sin. And so we're not going to bother to try to explain it or rationalize or understand what leverage marriage signifies, etc., etc. We just need to understand that that was the assumption of the right thing to do within Judah's family. So Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Okay, so this verse is often taken as like a proof text for why masturbation is wrong. But that's not really actually what's going on here in this passage. The point is not that it was wicked that his semen went on the ground. The point was that he was supposed to be fulfilling the duty of levirate marriage to this woman. And he didn't. Consider how wicked this is though. It doesn't say that the time that he went into her he spilled his semen It says whenever he went into his brother's wife. So basically he's just using her. He basically has a convenient excuse to sleep with his uh, dead brother's widow. And he has no intention whatsoever of fulfilling this duty of levirate marriage to her. Right, so you can see he's basically using her for his sexual gratification. So imagine how frustrated and disappointed obviously she's going to feel time after time when he's coming and she basically begins to understand he's pretty much just using her. Right? This is a very wicked thing. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. So obviously Shelah was not at an age where he was able to perform the duties of a brother-in-law to Tamar. And so Judah says, just wait, and then when he grows up, he will perform the duties of Leveret marriage to you. Um, But we need to remember that from Deuteronomy 25, she was not free to go marry anyone else. So it's not like basically he was it's not like he was releasing her and saying, We can't fulfill this duty, so go and be free. He's saying, Remain a widow. You see, even many years later, in the course of time, Judah's wife dies and he goes to shear sheep and he goes into her. Is notice that it says though in verse fourteen, she took off her widow's garments. So even many years later, she still has to wear these widow's garments, which culturally signified that she's not available, she's still in a period of grieving, right? That there's this formality where she's not free to be married to anyone else. So basically, she is told by Judah to wait for Shelah. But then in the course of time, she sees that Shelah is grown up, verse 14, and she had not been given to him in marriage. The reason is, in verse 11, that Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers, so I think he, he sees Tamar as being the cause of, Onan, of Ur and Onan's death. He's a little bit superstitious. Like whoever marries this woman seems to die, right? Whoever goes into this woman seems to die. So it seems that that was the hesitation here. He doesn't want to give Shilat to her because he fears that she's going to die. So that's basically the context of what's happening here. And then Tamar obviously deceives Judah. She acts as if she's a cult prostitute. So at that time in the religious practices in the ancient Near East, there was cult prostitution where basically you would act out acts of fertility so that the gods would bless the land with fertility. And that was kind of a basic paradigm within which many of the ancient Near Eastern religions operated. And so cult prostitution was a big part of religious life as it was understood that the gods would bless our agricultural pursuits if we do acts of fertility in our worship and our devotion to them. So that's what's going on here. She dresses up as a cult prostitute. His wife has died. He's going to shear sheep with his friend and he sees a cult prostitute and he decides he wants to go into her, which obviously is wrong she obviously leaves the veil on as she has intercourse with him, verse 19, because it says, then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So this is what keeps him from recognizing her. Right? So there's this basically this sexual exchange that happens where he thinks she's a cult prostitute. She knows he's her father-in-law and she's basically trying to get pregnant so that she can have uh, posterity, right? A widow having sons would actually be beneficial to her, not only in terms of just the desire to have sons, like the honor and the perpetuity of your name, but even someone to care for you in your old age and so on and so forth. So She wants to have children, so she takes matters into her own hands, and this is her plan. She requires not merely a young goat from the flock. She's not, just, she's not just prostituting herself, but she requires identifying symbols. So his signet and cord was basically a cord with a seal on the end that would have the identifying marks of whoever seal it was. And the staff apparently was also identifying, that it would be carved in a certain way that was unique. It wasn't like you just go and buy one of the 80 that are sitting on the shelf in the store that are all mass manufactured in China, right? Each one was individualized such that it was an identifying thing. We know whose staff this is. So he gives her identifying marks in exchange for this uh, sexual gratification. And then basically three months later, obviously she's showing and it's reported to him that she's pregnant and he says bring her out that she may be burned not a very just response Um, or if it's just it's not put it this way he's not tying himself to the stake with her You understand? So he's he's guilty of the same sexual sin that she is. Obviously, even though he doesn't know it's her. So he's obviously not applying his sense of justice equally. Let's say that. And then she says, please identify whose these are. Because this is the man by whom I'm pregnant. Then what happens is... He says, in verse 26... She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son... Shalah and he did not know her again. That's a very interesting statement, and it gives us a clue as to what this story is doing. Because we just read it and we're like, "This is this is like an episode of Jerry Springer or something like this." Like, what is going on in this passage? What we see is that this is this is a little bit of a connector between judah's actions in genesis 37 and judah's actions in 43 and 44 so in 37 remember we talked about how just cold-blooded these brothers were in first planning to kill joseph and then in verse 26 then judah said to his brothers what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood come let us sell him to the ishmaelites And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. See, it was actually Judah who said, well, let's not just murder. Let's murder for profit. See, he was a leader in wickedness in Genesis chapter 37. What we see in 43 and 44 is a very different Judah. We're going to get into this, obviously, in greater detail as we go. But basically, Joseph says to them that they need to bring Benjamin with them. Because they had left Benjamin at home at Israel's request. Because he didn't want to be parted from his youngest son, Benjamin. But Pharaoh, or pardon me, Joseph, um, who is second in command to Pharaoh, said... That they can't come back unless they bring Benjamin. So basically they need to go back and they need to bring Benjamin. And Israel objects to bringing Benjamin back. And Judah said to Israel, his father, in Genesis 43 and verse 8, Send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you then let me bear the blame forever in verse 44 we see that those are more than words that Judah actually backs that up in the way that he acts before Joseph his brother who doesn't yet know is Joseph his brother Genesis 44, Judah says in verse 18, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, Buy us a little food. We said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So this one who decided to or encouraged his brothers to murder for profit, essentially, as opposed to just merely murdering, Who then hypocritically consoled his grieving father in Genesis 37 and verse 35 as if he didn't know what happened uh, to Joseph. This one in Genesis 43 and 44 actually seems to show genuine care, genuine concern for Benjamin and for Israel, his father. What changed? What happened? Genesis 38 seems to give us a clue. We're going to circle back around to that. But let me make this point. Because it's going to help us later when we do circle back around to that idea. This passage also teaches us about the... Lineage of a couple of great kings who will come from Israel. In Genesis 49, Jacob, or Israel, blesses his sons and he says in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub." From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, etc., etc. There's this prophecy, though, of Judah being a lion with a scepter who rules over his brothers. This is a prophecy of kings coming from his line. We read at the end of Genesis 38 that one of the twins that comes from this union between Judah and Tamar is a son named Perez. And at the end of the book of Ruth, we read of Boaz and Ruth's child named Obed. And it says, Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then there's these few verses tacked on at the end. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So you see that David comes from the line of Perez. Which means that he's a descendant of this union between Judah and Tamar. David of course was a great king, but there is a greater king, a better David, Jesus Christ, of course. And in Matthew chapter 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, so on and so forth. All the way down to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So this passage teaches us something of the family that Jesus comes from. There is... A country song that says I come from a long line of sinners like me obviously Jesus couldn't say I come from a long line of sinners like me because he was without sin but he could say I come from a long line of sinners if we read Matthew's genealogy more closely we see not only Judah and Tamar but we see many others Jesus comes from a long line of sinners. Jesus comes from sinners. From a family of sinners. Matt Smethurst, who works for the Gospel Coalition, said, The family that Jesus comes from tells us something about the family that Jesus came for. Not only did Jesus come from sinners, but Jesus came for sinners sinners. You see, He became one of us. He came right into the line of sinners. Was born of a woman who was herself a sinner. In Luke 2, Jesus, Mary calls Jesus her Savior. Jesus becomes one of us. He is as the end of Isaiah 53 says, numbered with the transgressors. It bears the family name of a family of sinners. Why? To make intercession for the transgressors. To bear their sins in His body on the tree, as 1 Peter 2 says, in order to reconcile us to Himself. When we read the Old Testament it's very clear that the people from whom Jesus comes are not really worthwhile worthy, admirable holy people. It's not even a worthwhile admirable holy nation as if his family was just a bunch of bad apples in an otherwise good nation. Jesus' family and the nation to which they belonged were sinful. Was sinful. Jesus comes from a long line of sinners. He belongs to a family of sinners. The family that he comes from tells us something about the family that he came for. Jesus came to save sinners of course we read things like we've been studying in the last couple of Sunday mornings whoever does not believe is condemned already the wrath of God remains on him but whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life we read in first John chapter 1 if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's for sinners that Jesus came. Jesus came from sinners for sinners Jesus came for sinners if you think that somehow you can have the benefits of Christ Jesus without acknowledging that you're a sinner you're wrong Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Sinners. Not the proud. Not the haughty. Not the arrogant. Not the self righteous. Not those who think they have no need of him. Jesus came for sinners. It's not the healthy, Jesus said. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick. Jesus came for sinners. It's Luke 1, pardon me, not Luke 2. Where Mary says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She calls God her Savior because she herself is a sinner. She goes on to say though, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. What does he do with the proud? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What does he do with the mighty? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. What does he do with the humble? He has exalted those of humble estate. What does He do with the hungry? He has filled the hungry with good things. What does He do with the rich? The rich He has sent away empty. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Jesus came from sinners for sinners. For sinners. You can't think that you're a good person and apply to Jesus for eternal life. You can't think that you're a good person and apply to Jesus for the pleasures that are at God's right hand. You can't apply to Jesus for all of the blessings of the covenant and think you're a good person. It doesn't work that way. Jesus came from sinners for sinners. As we've seen in our studies in John 3 over the last couple of weeks, you're not going to acknowledge... That you're a sinner, at least not more than in a superficial way. Almost everybody will, frankly, if you ask them, well, are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. But in terms of getting the fact that poison's running through your veins, so to speak, that you're condemned, that you're perishing, that the wrath of God remains on you, and that it's right and good and just that it is so you're not going to do that apart from a work of God opening your blind eyes to see unless you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of heaven what the apostle John says is sadly true Jesus came from above but no one received his testimony. Obviously, that's not literally no one. It's comparatively no one. We see this is true because there's a blindness in the human race that causes us to refuse to acknowledge the depth of our sin. I was watching an interview with the British comedian Ricky Gervais who's a well-known atheist, He's very outspoken against religion. And he said to Piers Morgan, who was interviewing him, people say that religion is the basis of, the only basis of morality. He said, but I'm an atheist, and I'm a good person. I live my life in a good way. See, there's a blindness there. But it's a blindness that affects more than just atheists. It's a blindness that affects religious, but not regenerated people. There's a blindness that causes us to think we're actually pretty good people, that we're actually going to fare reasonably well on Judgment Day because of our goodness. There's a blindness that causes us to balk at the truth that Scripture puts forward. That all of our righteousness is at his filthy ranks. Unless God works in us, showing us our sin, we're not going to be prepared to humble ourselves before the Messiah and acknowledge our need, acknowledge our guilt accept the consequences of our sin and simply appeal for mercy we're not going to be ready to meet Jesus unless God prepares our hearts for that now we circle back around it seems here that God is graciously working in Judah's life in Genesis 38. Consider how contrary to human nature it is to repent immediately. Just even think of a small thing. Let's say if you're married you get in in an argument with your husband or your wife. And about halfway through you realize you're wrong. How hard is it to just be like, yeah, Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right, sweetheart. Sorry, I was wrong this whole time. I'm I'm really arguing with you about nothing. This is my own fault. How hard is it to do that in the middle of the conversation? And that's just a relatively small thing. But consider what Judah does here in this section. She said, please identify whose these are. And the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I. He acknowledges right away. You remember, I didn't write this down beforehand, so I don't have the passage in front of me. But you remember where God had commanded Saul to destroy. Everybody and all the livestock in a particular city. And then he takes the best of the livestock and saves them and preserves them in disobedience to God's command. Samuel comes to him and he says, I've done all the will of the Lord. And then Samuel says, Then what is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cows that I hear? He confronts him. And what does Saul do? Makes excuses well I kept it for sacrifice this is the way that we tend to respond is this rationalizing this justifying it seems here in this passage that there's actually no rationalizing no justifying just actually an acknowledgement of his own guilt and it seems that there's actually lasting change here that it's not just a flash in the pan it says he did not know her again which presumably means he could have. But he wasn't like his son Onan. Who was prepared to use her for his own sexual gratification. It seems here that he was struck with remorse. And realized that the honorable thing to do. Was not to use her for his sexual gratification. And of course. Obviously she wasn't brought out and burned. As several months later she gave birth. To these boys. And then. This one who is so callous as to sell his brother into slavery for profit and then go and have the nerve to go and console his grieving father so hypocritically, so duplicitously seems in chapters 43 and 44, as I read earlier, to have actually genuine concern for his brother Benjamin genuine concern for his father Jacob. He seems willing to follow through on the commitment that he made even though it's going to cost him. He's going to have to stay in an Egyptian jail if he substitutes himself for his brother Benjamin. It seems that Genesis 38 tells us no, not in so many words. Of Judah's conversion. It seems that this shows us the turning point in Judah's life. And when he, when he goes to being against all that is right, all that is good. Against the true and sincere worship of the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It seems that this is a turning point. From here we see a Judah who is prepared to do the right thing, who seems to have a heartfelt and sincere love for what is good, what is right, what is true. By implication, I think it's fair to infer one who turns to the worship of his fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see here then God graciously preparing, God graciously preparing Judah for an encounter with the one who later will look for signs of repentance we're going to come to that in due time but you ever wondered why Joseph plays all these games with his brothers he's trying to ascertain what kind of men are these is there any remorse is there any repentance it seems that God is preparing Judah to meet the one who's going to look for repentance. The one to whom Judah is going to have to apply for forgiveness, but the one from whom forgiveness is not going to be granted apart from repentance. God is preparing Judah here to meet the one from whom he needs forgiveness and provision. In order that his life might be sustained, we've seen over the last two weeks that Joseph, in this whole narrative, is a type of Christ, a pre-shadowing, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Christ Jesus. The one who was humbled and then was left for dead. Yet was in due time exalted. To forgive, to provide forgiveness and provision for the sustenance of his brother's lives. To bring his brothers, to go ahead of them, to prepare a place for them. That where he is there, they may be also. God, it seems in Genesis 38, is preparing Judah. Judah. To meet his exalted brother from whom he needs forgiveness and provision. This is God's grace to Judah. There seems to be an inward heart change wrought in this passage, which wasn't wrought in Saul, for example, in the story that I just mentioned to you, which wasn't wrought, it wasn't worked out in many other biblical characters. You think of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5 they had the opportunity to tell the truth to come clean but they didn't they hardened their hearts this heart change isn't raw in everyone some people just double down on their sin but it seems here that there's an astounding about face in terms of the way that Judah relates to the people around him It seems here that he's cut to his heart about his sin. The way that David was when Nathan confronted him about his adultery and the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Remember, he tells that story and then he says, Thou art the man. David's cut to the heart and he repents. It seems here that through Tamar's actions, Judah is cut to the heart. He realizes his sin and that there's a real change. There's a 180 here in Judah's life. So we see that just as it is in this day and age, so it was then. God is in the business of saving sinners. God is in the business of changing people from being extremely hard-hearted and calloused. Which we see that Judah was in 37. He throws his brother in a pit to leave him for dead with no food, no water, in the middle of the desert, and then sits down to eat. And then has the bright idea well, if he's going to die anyway, we might as well have some profit. Let's sell him as a slave. And dips his brother's cloak in blood and then lies to their aging father that a wild animal has torn him to pieces. And then has the gall to go and console his father. About his brother's tragic death. That's the kind of guy Judah is. In 37. So hard hearted. But God changes even the most hard hearted. Even the most calloused. Some of you were converted at a young age and you don't remember a period of hard heartedness. Others of you do. I do. Many of us remember a time when we didn't care for the things of the Lord. A time when we just persisted in sin. When we would do evil things and then, as Judah did in chapter 37, just sit down to eat. Like, well, we've done a morning of evil, let's have lunch. But God changes hard-hearted people. He prepares them to meet that brother through whom God is bringing many sons to glory. He prepares them by bringing their hearts to a sense of their own evil, a sense of their own wickedness, in order that they might be ready to look to that ascended and exalted brother for forgiveness and for provision. He brings them to a place where they're ready to say that Jesus came from sinners for sinners, and sinners such as I. This is what's going on in Genesis chapter 38. Jesus comes from sinners like Judah, for sinners like Judah. And God graciously prepares the hearts of sinners like Judah for meeting the ascended... Brother, through whom God is bringing many sons to glory. Jesus is a friend of sinners who know their sinners, who come to Him looking for mercy.